You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord, thank you for uh, bringing us together on this Lord's Day, and thank you, Lord, for drawing our hearts together in worship. And I pray that now, in this teaching hour, um, that you will bring clarity, Lord, to our conversation, and that you'll help all of us to open our hearts and minds to what your word has to continue to teach us. And thank you for a book like Ecclesiastes that forces us, Father, to look at what it means to live um, and lean into real life, not, not being able to transcend ourselves out of the complexities of human existence and relationships. And I pray that you'll help us to learn what it is you'd have to teach us here and, and organize our own thoughts, thoughts and affections in light of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so uh, this is the last day of Ecclesiastes. And then next, is it next next week, I think? Next week I start a three-week series um, in the dean's class on um, Joel and, and Amos. And... Um, it's something I can't remember what the title is. I'm horrible at titles, but it'll be on Joel and Amos. And um, you know, a- a- Amos is a really hard book, so I I encourage you to go to another class. But you know, do do whatever the Lord leads. Um, last week we kind of got up to Ecclesiastes chapter five, and it and I see this as a kind of a kind providence. Because Ecclesiastes chapter 5 is the introduction of a theme in the book of Ecclesiastes in the middle of the book that will then, at the end of the book, um, the, 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 the narrator will return to this theme as the kind of summation of the whole book. So you can think of Ecclesiastes chapter 5 as a kind of a planting of a seed that within due course, uh, the, the author is going to come back um, to, the, to the themes that are set out here to give us a kind of totalizing view of how we're to understand reality and our existence. And that's kind of where we're going to try to go today. And today's going to be a lot of shotgunning, all right? So brace yourself. I hope there's some linearity to the thought here, but no promises. Um, So let let me read you Ecclesiastes chapter 5, the first few verses. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now, remember, up until this point, the preacher has been helping us think about life really with the view of the bottom up. I mean, what what does it mean to enter into existence, and what does it mean to try to grab hold of the three biggies that he's thinking about when it comes to human existence, namely the pursuit of wisdom. What does it mean to live skillfully? Number two, the pursuit of pleasure. What does it mean to actually um, enjoy uh, this world that God has given us? And then number three, and what does it mean to attain a certain kind of wealth, or even put maybe in a broader perspective, what's human toil and labor all about? So those have been the three big nodal interpretive points for um, the author all the way up until chapter 5. And of course, the term that he's been using to describe this is vanity, um, that Hebrew word hevel, um, that's smoke, uh, that's ungraspable, that's here and then it's gone. And where, whatever your pursuit of wisdom, wherever your pursuit of pleasure, and your pursuit of your own toil and your, and your labor's end, the goal of your labor, at the end of the day... From a human perspective, because you know we're all going, I mean, it's all kind of, with our gospel reading today, it's already a little Debbie Downer already. Um, but we're, we're all, di- we're all going to die. It's going to happen. 
and you don't get to take any of that with you. It's, it's ungraspable. It's like smoke in your hands. So now in chapter 5, um, Kohelet, the, the, the preacher, brings a top-down perspective into view. And this is crucial because I think that's the kind of move, by the way, that you have often in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. You'll move from a kind of top, a bottom-up view of reality. Um, and, and what, and we got, this, there's a danger here of reducing, but what might be one of the principal challenges when you go into the wisdom literature of the Bible, think the book of Psalms and Proverbs, what's one of the, the primary challenges that people have regarding their faith that the Bible allows us to lean into and think about? Namely, what happens when what I believe to be true comes into conflict with what I'm experiencing? How do, how do I work through that? How do I think about that? Now, I mentioned Psalm 73 in the sermon this morning, but that's a classic example. Here's a temple priest who says in verse 1, My whole life I've been saying God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But when I start looking around at the evil around, around me and wicked persons, they seem to be enjoying the promises that God has given to us because we have followed in His way. It doesn't seem to be working out that way. And so here you have Asaph. I mean, this is, this is a temple priest who's saying, what I believe to be true is not quite corresponding to what, to the experiences that I'm, I'm having right now. And where, um, do, does the Bible, and especially the wisdom literature, and even Psalm 73, where does it force us again and again? If I can put it in confessional terminology or creedal terminology, it forces us to this conclusion. I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Um, my experience right now, though real, that's one of the things I love about the wisdom literature, doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't, it's not a kind of, um, rah, rah, rah speech at halftime to tell you, no, the score's not really 35 to 3. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's we're gonna go back in the second half and it's 0 to 0. You know, the coaches do that kind of nonsense at halftime. Um, but no, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a realistic view at human existence, but it's letting you know, that your existence and experience right now is not the sum total of reality. And there's always a danger to reduce reality to our particular um, views. Um, we see this in our political discourse, but we won't talk about that. Um, so Ecclesiastes 5 brings God's transcendence back into view in light of, of the human vision of life under the sun. So guard your steps when you draw near to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing. So don't be rash with your mouth. Don't let your heart be, be hasty to utter a word um, before God. Um, keep your limitations in view. Um, this, I mean, this is a good word to those of us, um, especially in the Western world on the far side of modernity, who believe and our abilities to achieve anything, and I think that there's some some very good and there's good in that, but there's also a kind of counter to that in the Bible that would want to say, do remember your limitations, um, do remember that your particular view is not necessarily the view of God Himself, and that one needs to keep a distinction on some level between your understanding of God and the world and His ways and His will and God's own self understanding. And I think finding pastoral comfort in that. I'm not sure people always find that comfortable, but finding comfort in the fact that God doesn't change, finding comfort in the fact that God is omnipotent, finding comfort in the fact that even though, again, from the bottom-up perspective, everything seems topsy-turvy for me, right now at least, um, from God's perspective, all things are equally present to Him in their totality. And God's not wondering what might kind of unfold in this moment. 
It's one of those things I love about the Bible's move from the, from earth to heaven. You see this in Isaiah chapter 6, for example. This is the year of the death of King Uzziah. You know, the transitions in power, politically speaking, are always tumultuous. That's I would say that's one of the great things about um, the American sort of political scene, at least, is, is in January um, during the inauguration. I mean, the, the, the smooth transference of power, that's a remarkable thing. I've been reading, I'm preparing for another class, I've been reading the history of the northern kingdom of Israel again um, in the book of Kings, and it's remarkable. You know, Jehu comes along and kills, Jezre- kills um, Jehoshaphat in the, in, the, in the valley of Jezreel, and then he comes along, he gets killed, and then someone else gets killed. I mean, we're talking about, all to say, the transition of power is not always very smooth, right? Um, and, and, uh, and here, and here um, Isaiah sees Uzziah the king, a good king who's passed off the scene, and what, what happens? He's transported to the very kingly throne room of God himself to see that God's on the throne without any kind of um, concern about his kingship. We see something similar in the book of Revelation where you have Jesus. Um, and, and by the way, if you think Jesus is sweet and mild, um, you know, Revelation, the risen Lord, is kind of scary at certain moments. And, and here he is walking through the churches in Asia Minor saying, I really appreciate this, but you really need to think about this. And if you don't think about this, then you're no longer going to be. And that's what Jesus says to them. So the churches seem to be in some kind of turmoil there in Asia Minor in Revelation 2 and 3. But then when you move to Revelation 4 and 5, where are we? We're in the very throne room of Jesus himself. Where the angels and the martyrs and the whole company and hosts of heaven are in perpetual and continual praise of Jesus. And they're not stopping. I mean, so the church militant down here is struggling left and right, and Jesus is bringing the church under critical scrutiny and judgment. But in heaven, the church triumphant, it's like, well, things seem to be kind of okay up there. They're worshiping, they're fine. They're not, so that, that, that's the kind of move that I think Kohelet is bringing us, the, 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 the preacher is bringing us here in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Um, uh, verses 4 to 5, I'm not going to read all this, but it says when you vow, vow to God, make sure you pay it. So there's a warning here about uh, the danger, a uh, kind of a hesitancy to bargain with God, right? Um, and then verse 7 is kind of where it's going. Um, for when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. So what's the author providing for us here? It's providing for us some, the touchstone. Th- think about the play that's going on here. Um, dreams and visions, this is vanity. Um, the, this is smoke. These things come and go. They're not, you're not, so what, what can we hold on to? What's not Hevel? I think that's what's going on here in verse 7. What's the opposite of transitoriness? What's the opposite of ungraspability? Namely, God Himself and the fear of Him. God is not transient. God is not hevel. God is not smoke that's here and then ungraspable the next moment. God gives Himself to His people to be known and to be loved. And He gives Himself to His people genuinely and truly. When God speaks, God redeems and He draws people to Himself. So this fear of God here is a recognition of what? Bringing the scope and view and the glory and the beauty and the transcendence and the otherness and the stability of God Himself into center view as we deal with real life struggles from the bottom up. Why? Because in the next few verses after this, we're going to go back to it. I saw this and I saw a man who worked his whole life and he gained all this wealth and then he died. And his son squandered it. That's vanity. Then he goes. So in other words, he, it's not like we're now going off into happy-go-lucky land after this. 
But he's giving us an interpretive referent point for how we deal with the difficulties of our existence in light of its chevel nature, in light of its ungraspable nature. What are we left with? We're left with two very beautiful things, I think, in Ecclesiastes. We're left with, number one, God's good gifts of pleasure in this world. He gives us pleasurable, pleasurable experiences. And I love the, the prayers of morning prayer. All gifts come from God. All the blessings of this life, all the good gifts of this life have their source in God. Um, you'll remember in the Screwtapes letter, letters, I think I read this last week or the week before, um, that the evil one, the devil, lets us know very clearly that when it comes to pleasure, we're on the enemy's ground. That's Jesus' ground. He's the author of genuine pleasure. Um, I mean, I do think it's a kind of fascinating thing to think that here you had the Pharisees and the scribes in the first century world, um, and do you remember when they were trying to bring charges against Jesus, one of the things that they used to, to, to lean against him? Um, he's a drunk and a, and a glutton. They said that about Jesus. I mean, isn't it a remarkable thing that his, his first miracle in John 2 is at a, at a party um, where he's turning water into wine? Um, I mean, that's kind of remarkable. You know, in my teetotaling kind of Baptist world growing up, that was always a tough text to deal with. I can remember, <laughs> I, I can, I, you know, I can remember, I can remember preachers doing backflips on, you know, trying to get through that. And, and I can also remember hearing explanations like this of John 2. Um, this is going to be recorded. I regret this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, you know, you know, why, why do they save the good, why do they give the good wine first and then the bad wine later? I was, this is how I heard this growing up in various sermons. That happened because once you drink some wine, your, you know, any wine, your palate gets, you know, changed enough to, have you heard this? Your palate gets changed enough to where, you know, at the, at the end, you can't tell if it's shot enough to pop or two buck chuck. I mean, you can't, you can't tell, right? Um, so, so give the good wine first and then the bad wine. That, that's how I, that's how it was explained to me. And, um, just, just read John 2 carefully. The, the, the reason why they can't distinguish the good wine from the bad wine is because they're inebriated. Yeah. Right? And so they're, they're, they've had a good time, and, they've, and it's gone a little too far. Um, and then Jesus comes in, and he, you know, I don't know, he, he enables that by making more wine. I, so he's a drunk, he's a glutton. I mean, so, the, 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 so I'm, I'm, there's not a clear kind of cut pattern on this, because we know... That what the enemy does, the evil one does in our lives, is to take good pleasures in this world and distort them. That is his great gift. I mean, that's his great challenge uh, to what it means to be a human person, is he takes the good things of this world and distorts them left and right. I mean, down to the silliest stuff. I mean, we're talking about all the way from youth sports like kids' soccer. You can just distort it in something absurd, um, which is which is good to, I don't know, your favorite meal. I mean, the, the point is the, the, the enemy knows how to be subtle on these things because true pleasure, uh, uh, rightly ordered and understood and engaged in its satisfying way, that's God's ground. That's a transcendent ground. When you enjoy real pleasure in this world, genuine pleasure, um, that's the echo of transcendence in our current human existence. Remember that famous line from Eric Little in The Chariots of Fire? You know, he's running down that beach in St. Andrews, Scotland, and, and uh, you hear the music, da, 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 right? And then he's running this race in somewhere in Scotland, and I, I'll never, it's just such a beautiful turn of phrase. I love to run, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. 
Know that? I mean, that's, you know, so we're not being called here to a kind of ascetic existence, a monkish existence that takes us outside of the real enjoyments of human relationships and, and, and creaturely goods. But the danger, of course, is distorting these things and getting our loves all out of whack. Because our love, to be rightly ordered, has to be viewed through Ecclesiastes 5.7. It has to be viewed through the lens of the fear of God. Um, and Jacques Ellul, who's a French philosopher and theologian, Jacques Ellul said that to enter into the fear of God is to enter into a kind of conscious understanding of living all of life in the presence of God, which itself is a gift. I mean, I think that's a gift of grace we should pray for. God, give me the gift of grace. I know I don't. Let me just come clean. I don't live all of my life as if I'm in the presence of God. Um, but what a gift to be called into that kind of existence, to think about all the good things, your vocation, your job, your family, the activity that you did yesterday, whether you were whatever college town you were in or whatever you were watching, that all these things be viewed as in the presence of God and good gifts that are given to us from Him for His glory and for His and for our good. I mean, that's that's Ecclesiastes gives us that kind that kind of view. But um, and he he goes on to say that Ecclesiastes five eighteen, behold. What I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment. And all the toil which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. So enjoy it. Because, oh, here's the bad news, verse 20, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. It's God gives us, um, God gives us the gifts of earthly pleasures, rightly understood and rightly ordered, as a kind of inoculation against the fact that we are still sinners and we know that our sin will ultimately lead lead us to the grave we don't we don't we don't get out of that we don't get out of that human reality um, which is frankly overwhelming my dad has a little bit of a penchant for the melodramatic and poetic he he likes so he'll he'll often give me he'll like mark you should start a sermon like this um, and I'm like, I don't know about that, Dad. But the one, one that he's, he's always, for years, he's told me, you should start a sermon like this, Mark. He said, what's that, Dad? He said, start a sermon by telling people the world is one big graveyard. And I'm like, well, it's a little heavy, Dad. You know, I don't know. Um, but that's, that's kind of what, that's kind of what Kohelet's doing, right? We live in a great, we're all going, we know that we are made of dust and we're returning to it. Um, so how do we enter into this existence? Well, fearing God and enjoying enjoying His world. And then if you look at this, there's a kind of call to sobriety. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Let me be sensitive to the time. A good name is better than precious ointment. And then now he's giving wisdom again. So this is kind of classic wisdom literature. The day of death is, is, is better than the day of birth. And this, this is an interesting turn of phrase. Uh, verse 2, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Do, do, do you hear the challenge there? Francis Fenelon was a French mystic. Um, I used to carry this quote around with me. I don't do it anymore. Um, but the, the, he said, um, happy is the person who always keeps the hour of his or her death in front of them. That's kind of what Kohelet is doing here. It's better really to go to a funeral than a party. Because when you go to a funeral, um, you have, uh, you, you're, you're roused to, to your fate, to, to where, to where we're all going. Um, 
who was it uh, Samuel Johnson? I think it was Samuel Johnson, the author of the Oxford English Dictionary, who said, when someone's told that they are going to die by hanging in two weeks, it brings an enormous amount of clarity to them for the next two weeks of their existence. Right? When you know that your time is short, clarity becomes a matter of probably first importance. And that's what Ecclesiastes is doing here. And it's not hand-holding. Um, this, is, this, is not, um, this is not a kind of uh, syrupy, um, you know, carpe diem here, you know, seize the day. Uh, this is a very raw and real account that says, listen, um, when you go to a funeral and you see what you see there, do, do lay it to heart that that's the way of all humanity. We, we, no one gets a free pass out of that. Um, Enoch did in the Old Testament, um, and Enoch was not. Isn't that just one of my favorite lines in, in Genesis? And he was not, because God had taken him. Um, don't tell anybody I said this, but I have a few colleagues at Beeson that, that wouldn't surprise me. It's not me. Um, but I've got two, two colleagues in particular that are, I just feel like are really pious and godly men in the best sense of that term. Um, Robert Smith is one of them, and Frank Thielman is the other, and I always feel very self-conscious about my sinful status whenever I'm around either one of them. And, uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if someone came to me and said, and Robert Smith was not. <laughs> you know, Frank, you, Osvaldo's here, you know what I'm talking about. Frank Thielman was not. He just, the Lord just took him. But, uh, but that's, you know, that isn't going to happen to me, and I don't think it's going to happen to you either. Um, you know, no offense, you're, ni- you're a nice group, uh, but... Well, if you look here again at this kind of moving back and forth to the to the ungraspability of life, the the, the, the enigmatic character of life. Look at these words here. I thought this is beautiful. Uh, Ecclesiastes nine seven through ten. Go eat bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let the oil be lacking. Let not the oil be lacking on your head. In other words, like clean yourself up a little bit and put put some cologne on, some perfume, and, and enjoy 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 your meal. Um, look at this next verse. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Oh, this is this would be a great wor- a great verse, a great sermon text, a homily text at a, at a wedding. L- listen to this turn of phrase. It, kind of, it sounds great, and then it kind of goes, huh? Um, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. That has been given to you under the sun, <laughs> because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. And this is again one of those places where I think the term vanity is not helpful. I just think it's not helpful. He's not talking about your vain, enigmatic. Un- he's talking here about what the transitory character of your life, the ungraspable nature of it. Um, you, you can't hold on to this moment. It's coming and it's going. Um, so what should you do? Enjoy your wife. Enjoy being with her. In verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in the place of the dead to where you're going. Right? So all this moves kind of tyrannically into chapter 12. This is where I want to end. All this moves to chapter 12. All right. Well, I think what we find in the book of Ecclesiastes is what we might call a believing realism. A faithful realism. A recognition of the true difficulties and transitory and enigmatic character of our lives. 
and yet also a call to fear God and believe God. That's the, that's the organizing principle of our whole existence and to enjoy the good gifts that he gives us in this world. So look at verse 12. He, he's, remember, he's moving to remembering here. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Uh, the way in which I, when I move to chapter 12, I kind of think of um, the preacher here as an old man um, who's putting his arm around us and saying, listen, you've, I've taken you on a wild journey here. Uh, and I haven't, I, haven't, I haven't pulled any punches. I've, I've, I've put life and all of its character and challenges before you with your pursuit of wisdom and knowledge, with your pursuit of pleasure, with, your, with all the labor that you're going to bring to your life and the hard work that you're going to do that's going to take up so much of your time. Um, so I'm, I'm putting all that in perspective for you. But now let me, let me put my arm around you here and give you a kind of final word. And that's what chapter 12 is. Remember your creators in the days of your youth. Um, Soren Kierkegaard, in his, he wrote a little piece on um, remembering your creator in the days of your youth, and he makes an associative reading between Ecclesiastes 12.1 and Jesus pulling children onto his lap and saying, you need to be like one of these uh, to be in the kingdom of heaven. So in other words, if Kierkegaard's kind of, and I think it can be helpful, I don't think it's a totalizing view of this text, but if, if it can be helpful, and I think it is, um, if you feel like you don't fit in the category of youth, Right, um, then maybe we're misreading this. In other words, what Jesus tells the the disciples is, you got to become like one of these children. In in other words, um, we're always in the position in Ecclesiastes 12, no matter what your age is um, and what your generation is, to hear these words as a challenge to our own existence now. Um, Remember your Creator. Um, Bring your Creator into view. Um, again, I, I, we almost can't do better. I'm sure we can. Okay, I don't want to get I don't want to get platonic about the Book of Common Prayer, but it's hard to get better than the prayer of general thanksgiving that we did this morning in the Book of Common Prayer. I mean, a recognition that God is the Creator and He's the Redeemer. That's 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 the shaping of that prayer of thanksgiving. He's the Creator, and all the good gifts of this life that He gives us stem from His hand. I've noticed lately at, at Beeson Divinity School that our dean uh, Timothy George begins so many of his prayers by saying, we know that all good gifts come from you. Um, I like that reminder because that reminds us that God is the one who has our good in mind and has created a world for our enjoyment. Um, I mean, it, well, it, even for our laughter. I mean, what, what, what purpose does a giraffe really serve? You know? um, or, or an ostrich. I mean, that's just, that's just God having fun. I mean, there's no doubt about it. That, that's a big divine joke right there. Um, I mean, just even for our enjoyment. I mean, we, we, we live um, in a house where I think for years the couple that was in our, in our, an elderly couple was in our house before and they were big gardeners. I mean, we've completely destroyed their legacy. Um, uh, but they were just, I mean, apparently this, the gardens were just immaculate and beautiful in this house and, and, and it's so funny because we've, that's all gone to pot now. It's a lot of grass around now. Um, but every once in a while, these goofy flowers will just pop out of nowhere. 
It's like, where'd that thing? And I'll see my little daughter. She's coming. I don't even know what these things are called, but they look like red spiders. It's kind of big red flowers. You know what I'm talking about? Um, I mean, my daughter will go out and cut 10 of them and bring them back. And, and where'd you find those? They're just out there, right? I mean, it's, it's, that's pleasure. There's joy in that, right? Um, so remember your Creator in the days of your youth, knowing that God is our Creator, that all good gifts come from Him. Before the evil days come, and He's told us from beginning to end in Ecclesiastes that it's going to come, um, the years draw near of which you will say, I have no more pleasure in them. I can remember my, my father, he's, in one of his more dyspeptic moments, said, you know, you're thinking about your retirement someday, Mark. He said, I just want to tell you something. Your, your dream of your retirement is dreaming in your 35-year-old body. Um, just, so, you know, just so you know, you get to take your 70-year-old body into retirement. And the dreams are a little different when you go there. Right? Well, there's, there's some wisdom in there. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. It's a very sober, sober word here. And then he moves to the final verses in verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher... Now, this is the narrator coming back in. Um, a horrible illustration, but this is... Uh, what was what was Columbo's real name, the actor? Yes, it's Peter Falk. So it's it's Mr. Falk coming in at the end of The Princess Bride. Do you, do you remember, have you all seen The Princess Bride? No, so he's reading the story to little Fred, what's his name, that I remember from The Wonder Years. So he's reading this little this story, and, and you're watching this, and the whole movie is about The Princess Bride, but he's the narrator. Um, and now here we, and then at the end of the story, he comes back and he shows up again, and that's how the movie ends. Well, that's kind of what's going on here. The, the narrators come back. He said, you've heard Kohelet in his own first-person voice, the preacher of Israel, from beginning to end. Now, let me sum this up for you. So besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. He gave himself to to this work. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Because the words of the wise are like goads, I hope Ecclesiastes has been that for you. It's been that for me. They're like nails that firmly fixed are the collected sayings they are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Because of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Oh, I just... I am feeling that. Um, Verse 13. I just had it happen to me yesterday. I'm trying to prepare for this thing with Alan Jacobs Tuesday night. I don't even know what I'm going to do. But... um, and I've been reading, I've been reading some of the poetry of William H. Alden, um, and, Ald, and, and Alden writes his own um, autobiographical entry into the collection of his own poems. It's kind of fascinating, actually. And, uh, and he says, you know, I, I, when I wrote, as a, he says, I've cut some poems out that some of you may have heard before because I wrote them and I didn't believe them. I thought it was interesting. It was me being young and pompous. Um, so I got rid of those poems, and I only want the poems that you have here to be sincere expressions of my experience and my belief. Um, and then he quotes a Vichy, uh, no, no, Visserai, or some, I think a French poet, who said, poems are never finished, they are merely abandoned. Um, and, I, and I had that underlined in the introduction here. I never remember reading that. But I, but I underlined it at some point. Yeah, Stokes, that never happens to you, does it? Steel trap. Richard's the steel trap brain over here. But Anyway. The words of the wise are like goads. There's weariness in the making of all kinds of books and study. But look at verse 13. This is the end. 
Oh, this is a razor focus here. The end of the matter, after everything has been heard, is fear God. Keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether it's good or evil. What was he doing here? There's nothing like a clear statement like this to kind of get us to view, view things properly. Fear God, or maybe another way of saying this would be, live life in the reality of God's being, of his existence as creator and redeemer. Live life in reality of that, knowing that someday you will meet him and have a direct encounter with him. Now, of course, we know this within a sort of Christian theological frame, a total biblical witness frame, that our meeting with God is only going to go well because of our being in Christ. That's the only way we have hope when we appear before the judgment seat of the Almighty. And it will be awesome, and it will be terrifying. I mean, I don't hope, I know this is kind of bad news, but it, God, is, God is not, um, God is other, right, overwhelming um, whatever you, whatever words you want to use to predicate it, more times ten to the tenth power, and even then it goes beyond any concepts of our own human reasoning. Um, overwhelming, and yet being in Christ is our hope, but also a recognition that we want our lives, by God's kindness and grace, to be ordered in such a way that our lips and our lives are in praise of Him. So when you're enjoying the good things of this world. And when you're leaning into, by God's grace, the gift of repentance toward fearing Him, and that fear marks your existence on Monday to Saturday and Sunday, that's how life is kept in perspective as you move from the reality of the difficulties of our bottom-up view of existence, but bringing that into light in view of God's top-down understanding of reality. And there's a kind of stability, I think, that comes to that in the midst of a very unstable world. I, I, I was talking with the Cook family this morning at breakfast about this, and I shouldn't be talking about this, because I don't, I don't, this is a hot topic. But has anything been so troubling as this week in American politics? Um, on all sides, on all sides, it, it, I was telling my wife, I said, this is, there is no political drama that I've ever seen in my life. I'm a relatively young guy, I guess, but this is it. This is better than any TV drama I've seen. West Wing is a joke compared to this. Um, and here we're seeing it unfold before us. And it's so disheartening on all sides. On all sides. Just, just a disaster. And here we are in the middle of this. And it would be very easy to let that kind of thing lead one to despair. I've been surprised actually how it's affected me. I'm just listening to it. I can't be dispassionate about the thing. Um, and here, you know, here Kohelet says, yeah. I mean, we didn't even talk about it, but read Ecclesiastes 5. We didn't get to it. Kohelet says, you want to get into political life? Think long and hard about it. All right? It says that. Um, so these, these, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, we, we enter into the complexity of what it means to be human in a sin-fallen world, even in our own bodies. And yet here Kohelet gives us a strong view of the end of the matter. Keep the fear of God before you, recognizing that your life to be lived fully and well is a life to be lived in his presence that's where true, true joy and true hope is to be found even in life's difficulties so lord thank you for ecclesiastes and i pray that you will um, continue to let a book like this shape us and and thank you lord that a book like this um, even gives us wise counsel about how to handle what we've experienced as a nation this past week and what we will this coming week it's not going anywhere 
Um, so Lord, help us to fear you. Help us to know that all good gifts come from you. And to thank you, Lord, for all the blessings of this life, but above all, for the inestimable love that you've shown us in the redemption of the world and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.